Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor Daniel Radcliffe. Before Daniel Radcliffe became the face of the global phenomenon that was Harry Potter, he was just a typical kid struggling to get through his schoolwork and get along with his teachers. Back then, his only acting credential was the BBC miniseries David Copperfield, but he made a good impression on fellow cast member Maggie Smith, who recommended him for the role that would change his life. Despite his parents' initial reluctance, Dan was allowed to audition, and once they started filming, he discovered his happy place. As he tells it, I was pretty terrible at everything in school, so it was nice to be on a film set where my hyperactivity and all the stuff that was irritating my teachers was actually useful and encouraged. Now nearly a decade removed from Harry Potter, he still finds acting to be a constant source of joy and challenge. When he made his first foray outside of Hogwarts, Dan bravely decided to take a giant risk, choosing the dark and psychologically complex play Equus as his coming out party. He says, I couldn't do something half-assed for my first thing on stage. It was my chance to get as far away from Potter as possible, both to show people that I was in it for the right reasons and to test myself. From his work on stage to his other films like Swiss Army Man, Jungle, and Kill Your Darlings, Dan continues to challenge himself. His most recent example being his broad, playful, and comedic role in the hilarious new series Miracle Workers, opposite Steve Buscemi. Dan joins off-camera to talk about the pressures that come with fame, taking on uncharted waters as magical dead guy in Swiss Army Man, and how to get through a Japanese airport without dying. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Dan. Hi, Sam. Thank you for doing this. No, thank you for having me. Do you know, we've been trying to have you on here for almost six years. The show, you were on our original list of people we wanted on. Oh, cool. But I'll tell you, when the show started, my daughters were like, you have to have him on. Oh, sweet. Now, they're over you. (laughs) No, I'm I'm kidding. No, yeah, cool. (laughs) But um, I'm always fascinated with anyone who found what they do early in life. Yeah. And managed to do it on, on a huge level because for me as a kid, I, I had no access to anything and I was such a enthusiastic kid about all the arts and I had no avenue to do it. So I, I would love to get into the whole thing because, yeah. because I, it's fascinating, but I want to start with, um, with your newest show, cool. uh, Miracle, Miracle yeah. Workers, and it's you and Steve Buscemi yeah. and you play basically a, a guy who, uh, works at Heaven Incorporated, which yes. is Heaven. <laughs> but you're down in the basement and you perform yeah. small miracles like helping people find their keys and their yeah. gloves. Yeah. And you get to be sort of big and funny yeah. and broad and, and playful. And, and I was just curious, uh, because these shows can become very popular and last for a long time. You know, if there were any trepidation or was there, what was the draw to signing up for a series? Well, that's the thing. It's if if we are lucky enough to get a second series, it will be it's an anthology series, so it would be a completely new setting, new characters, new plot, um, new everything, basically oh, with the same company that. of actors. Uh, so yeah, because that was a big. I did that was one of the things that stopped me getting into American TV for a long time was that standard contract is what like seven years right, and to right. play one character for a long time, which I've obviously done. Um, so yeah, I, I th- that that was why like this was such an ideal project. Right and. and- and you know it's it's funny because I feel like you have you've created such an interesting body of work and mm-hmm. and I don't think you've been in this territory before which is sort of you know it's it's definitely one of the most humorous things you've ever done yes. I think and also this character has a tremendous amount of anxiety yeah. he's a control freak he's uh, he's awkward and he's nervous yeah and he's kind of a shit sometimes as well like yes. there's a couple of things later on in the series that you're like ah but yeah I've done bits and pieces of comedy before but not in anything that I expect was like widely seen I mean, and I love working comedy and most of what I grew up watching probably and to this day really watches comedy um, so yeah it was really it's really like and it's just a joy to make them like it really to, to go into work every day and be like no oh, I don't have to like have a breakdown today or get right. covered in blood or you know die it's, it's nice well I'll tell you the character Steve Buscemi plays which is God yes and he's written as like a petulant actor on a film set that 
is like obviously the talent and the money, but everyone around him is working around him because he is completely gumming up the works yeah. and has no self-awareness. Yes. And the idea of growing up on a film set like you did, I was curious at what age you sort of worked it all out. Like, were you hyper self-aware as a kid? I mean, I, I, as a kid, I definitely was aware that like certain things about being on set was bullshit. Like, the idea that an actor can gum up the works because they are having a bad day. Like, it, as a kid, I was able to go, like, the focus puller never does that. You know, like, the, the grips are not going, like, guys, I've just had a tough day and I'm going to lose my shit and then, you know what, I'm going to go fucking, everyone go home. Like, that guy's not getting asked back the next day. And there is this, like, weird... Throws a C-stand down. Yeah, like, there's this weird ransom that some actors can... Yeah, actors can hold a set to ransom because we are on screen and so are harder to replace. There is, there is, if you have been filmed on, because if you do that on the first day, they can still get rid of you. I've seen that happen too in great ways. Um, when people were just like, there was, actually was on a friend set and there was somebody who came in like early in the morning, they hadn't shot on him yet. He was just being a dick to hair and makeup and horrible to people. The director heard about it was just like, fine, get rid of him. We don't need him. Like, and it was like, yeah, more of that, please. And, and the problem with that kind of behavior is that you, the, the, the good solution, like the proper solution to an actor behaving badly on set is to nip it in the bud there and then and take them aside, like the producers take them aside and sort it out and like just go like, why are you acting like this? Don't do this. You are holding the set up. But also that's never the right solution in the moment because in the moment you also have a crew and a cast full of people who just want to shoot the stuff they have to shoot that day and go home. You have stuff to do. So we're... And, and having that conversation is going to prompt another shit fit. Then, like the short-term solution is all is 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 always just to like placate it and get through the day. Which is why you do get this world in which like certain behaviors are tolerated. And I and I as a kid was like very very close to the crew. Like uh, I was like my dresser and some of the ads were like very very key people in my life. And I would hear the way they talked about actors who had been like dicks. And I was like, wow, well, I don't want myself to be talked about in those terms ever. Like, what can I possibly do to avoid that? And also, you just I I now like I, I've at a like at a certain point there was a there was so much. I, I grew up with the awareness that you know child stars are expected to be, you know damaged at best, <laughs> like terrible people at worst. And so initially, you know, I, I was sort of very focused on making sure that A, that wasn't the case and B, no one perceived that to be the case. And then after a certain point, though, it really is more about I'm just like, I don't know how actors who do behave like that enjoy their work or like get right. anything out of it. Like how you must feel, I guess it's because they don't have self-awareness. Because if you were self-aware enough to walk onto a film set knowing that people don't like you being there and that you are making their day worse by the way you're behaving, I don't know how you'd, like, have fun or, frankly, like, you know, live with yourself or go to work every day. You said a minute ago that you, you came up with the expectation that the pitfalls of child acting. Who sort of, like, educated you on that? Journalists interviewing me. Really? Um, yeah, because they go like, so, all these other kids are super fucked up. And you? Like, <laughs> there was a lot of, like, I mean, I guess, like, you know, I'd heard a bit of, uh, I was maybe vaguely aware of, like, the sort of tabloidy discussion of, of Macaulay Culkin and right, Lindsay right. Lohan, but it was all from, like, no one in my life was going, you know, you have to look out for these things. And, you you know, maybe certain people did later when I was a bit older, but particularly not at the beginning. No one was saying, like, you know, this is what people think of you. It was just becoming very apparent from doing interviews that, like, that was the perception of us because of the, the questions we were being asked. Just, like, at the end of the series, like, I was feeling kind of fine about the series ending until people started saying, what are you going to do? Like, what's your life going to be after this? And I was like, ah, I guess I don't know. Like, um... But yeah, so it's, 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 yeah, I think that's where I mainly, like, gleaned that from. That is, I would not have expected that, but it does make sense, because I remember when I first started as a photographer, I never assisted for other photographers, so I never got to see. Oh, yeah. It's so I would try to gather information on how a shoot was supposed to be from the people I was photographing. I always find that fascinating because there are certain jobs on film sets, and mostly the director. It's the only job you do on a film set where you've never seen someone else do that yes, job. Yes, you're like on these little islands. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I love being an actor is you are 
the de sort of the department that connects to literally every other department in some way at some time. So you do f you feel like you're really in the in the middle of stuff, which is yeah, it's great. Well, I do get the sense from the research I did and and just from reading about you and everything that you really do love what you do. Yeah. And I think it's not a small thing to have a desire as a child and then have that pan out to be the thing you still love 20 some years on. Yeah. And I was curious if you did love it from the beginning. I mean, I, I definitely, it's, I divide that into sort of two categories. Um, one is the acting and one's the being on set. Like personally, I think I looked really good for Harry Potter. I think I had the, you know, the right look and you know, was, I, I wasn't, Terrible, but like when I look at like, you know, the performances of like a young Dakota Fanning or Hey John Osmond or whatever, I'm like, I, I was not that. You know, I didn't, I certainly didn't view myself as being like the most like naturally gifted child actor at all. The thing I think I did get really lucky on was I loved it from the word go. You like, did. I loved being on set, uh, just knowing my place there and knowing what was going on and being, you know, kind of attentive and focused. I just, I, yeah, I loved it. And I do think I hadn't always grown up being like, I want to be an actor. I think I'd said that to my mum when I was like five, when I'd seen like a pantomime production of Aladdin. And she was like, no, you don't want to be an actor. Because her and my dad had both done it and hadn't had great experience. Well, they both acted. It. They both acted when As, they were younger. No yeah. kidding. So were they like sort of cautionary about yeah, it? Yeah, like, very much so. They were not like the pushy show parents. They were they were more the opposite way of like, oh, I don't. So they they originally the deal was to sign on for pretty much the whole series and it all to be filmed in LA. And my parents were just like, no, like, no, we're not even gonna let him audition Hence for that. why you never come to Los Angeles. Hence From the beginning it was like, don't go there. LA. But eventually um, through various circumstances and then the deal changed to being two films and all filmed just outside London. So they were like, okay, we'll, you know, we'll let him audition. But yeah, I feel like film sets are places of just like immense um, comfort for me. Like I love, I feel very, at home there and kind of like, you know, I know what I'm doing there more than I know what I'm doing in any other situation that I sort of find myself in. When that all sort of became a possibility, were you the same way about school, for instance? Like, did you love being at school no. and among your friends? And I mean, I got on well with the other kids at my school before I, before I started doing Potter. Um, I never got on with schooling very well. I was not athletic particularly and was certainly not academic. Um, so I didn't, like, I, you know, didn't particularly enjoy it. But you were a normal kid among your peers, confident. And yeah, yeah, absolutely, though, you know, not, you know, not the loudest member of the class, but also, like, I, you know, not, like, incredibly shy or anything, or, but, yeah, it was, I, 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 one of the great draws of doing TV and film at the beginning was, like, it gets me out of school. Like, really? it gets me out of there, and like, I wasn't, like, particularly happy there. I think I just felt like pretty shit at everything. So it was nice, I guess, to be in this other environment where suddenly, you know, my hyperactivity and all the stuff that was irritating the fuck out of my teachers at school was actually like useful and encouraged and kind of, you know, it's good to have a kid who's got energy to like go all day and film, you know, whatever. So the very thing that makes you, made you bad at school made you good at I, work? I think a little bit. And I, and I also think there is possibly an, an only child thing of like most of my interactions with adults were my parents or their friends or, or, you know, like there was a lot more, um, yeah, I was always very comfortable around adults. So suddenly being on a set, I just loved it. So when your parents allowed you to do this, to go yeah. audition and everything, how did the opportunity they, they come didn't, up? Um, I think actually Maggie Smith had recommended me from David Copperfield, the okay. BBC show I did with her. I think she right. put my name into Chris Columbus's mind. And then um, my dad was a literary agent by that time who had made a film uh, who, who one of his directors had made a film with Norma Heyman who is David Heyman's mother our producer on Potter yeah. so David went I think through Norma to my dad saying would he let consider letting me audition okay. I was completely unaware of all of this they just kept me I think rightly in the dark at that point so at one point there was a discussion between your mom and dad like do we let him yeah. go for this opportunity oh yeah absolutely um, they, I think, I think a, a, a few discussions probably. Yeah. Uh, and then we went to the theater one night and me and my mom and dad were sitting in one row and the row in front of us was sitting um, David Heyman, the producer, with a man next to him who later transpired was Steve Clovis who was adapting the, uh, the books for the screen. And 
I didn't know why, but I had I did notice this man like turning around and looking at me like several times during the show, and I was like, like what's, that? what's that about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a bit like, what? This is odd. Um, and then my uh, my mum and dad like at the interval came, and my mum and dad rushed me up and out and outside into the street and just like stood there like talking, and they were like, how's David? Uh, should we go and say hello? Should we like what do we do? You know, and not quite knowing what the uh, the thing to do was, and then basically like I think my parents. Uh, I don't believe in fate, but fortunately for me, my parents do, because um, they sort of viewed that as like a sign of like, okay, maybe we've we've now like just like run into the producer and the guy who's writing it randomly on the street. Maybe this is trying to tell us something. Should we just let him audition? Um, and and so they did. And I actually came into the process really late. I think Rupert and Emma both had like were into like the double digits in terms of how many auditions they got oh, to really? in total. I think I double digits. Did, yeah, I think I did like four or five. Um, it was relatively relatively quick. Um, and then, yeah, and I think I, I had my first audition in maybe June or July of that year, and then we were filming by September. And were you a fan of the book? Your parents read them to oh, you? Oh, I think my, my dad had read the first two to me, and I hadn't, I wasn't particularly, you know, I wasn't particularly a reader at all, like, so I, I found reading really tricky and, and, and I wasn't, um, wasn't into it. And then uh, after the first press conference that we did, um, where like they, you know, me, Rupert, and Emma walked out in front of sort of, sort of the London media and did this press conference where somebody asked me like some triv some like Potter trivia question and I like didn't know the answer and both Rupert and Emma, I remember very vividly like wrote it down on paper and tried to slide it over to me, which like in front of lots of cameras, like there was no way that was not being seen by anyone. Um, but uh, and I and I didn't know, so I guess after that I was like, I should probably I should really should read these. And then I, <laughs> yeah. I read the. Maybe first. you should read the source material. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I then I then I started from the beginning and loved it. And they, they and they they did for me what they did for a lot of kids. Like they got me into reading. Like I, really? I was, I've you know I'm now a, a pretty avid reader, and I I can definitely trace that back to both the Potter books and my parents. Just persistence. <laughs> you know it's funny? I think I saw that first press conference because I was watching, you did this really beautiful um, sit-down interview with J.K. Rowling where you interviewed oh, her. Yeah. But right at the beginning of that they had a clip from that press conference and I was struck by the size of you relative to all the people in the room yeah. and all these adults were just pointing things at you. They put the glasses on me as well. Do you remember what that felt like if it was terrible. Like, do you have any indelible memories from realizing the the level of interest? I think that was it. Was a really like gradual realization of how big these things actually were for me. Like, I don't think there was ever a moment. I don't think you're capable of grasping it at ten. What like doing a press conference at 10, means? And all these adults are like, yeah. But I think if you can become famous young, <laughs> and you can do it with good people around you, and you can kind of get through it, okay. It's a really good time to do it, actually, because you're very adaptable. And, like, it doesn't, like, you know, people coming up to me in the street and asking for photos or pictures or, or whatever it is always bothers the people who are with me a lot more than it bothers me. I mean, maybe some people say, like, it should bother me more because sometimes they're like, people are rude to you sometimes and you don't even, like, react. Um, but I think there's something. Um, yeah, once, if you've been having it happen since you were sort of 11 years old, it just become you just it become intertwines with your life and it becomes part of your life and it's just a thing that happens and it's not it doesn't feel like a disruption whereas i think if i'd become famous like when i was 18 it would have felt like weird but i'm fascinated with that idea of of when your life becomes different from everybody else's and i wonder if your parents not only if you ever butted heads with them but if they ever butted heads with each other over the proper course like when you become the world's i suppose in terms of the obligations and the and the fandom i just wonder yeah. if there was ever uh, I mean, and that's the thing there's not a blueprint for how to shepherd somebody through that and i do like you know when i i look back i i am amazed by the job they did I think just because they always managed to keep their humor about stuff like crazy shit happened to us as a family very young I mean like I we arrived in Japan um, when I was 12 for a Japanese press tour and there was um, you know the, the media reported that there were 5,000 people waiting in arrivals for us because um, in Japan at the time I think you could just phone someone up and be like is so-and-so on this flight and they'd be like yes um, and so like thousands of people showed up at the airport to, and it was like because we, we got a message before we landed where they were like there's a hundred security guards um, have been uh, are on staff for your landing and we're like 
that seems a bit much. That's crazy. And then we landed and it was like, oh, no, this is not enough. <laughs> like this is wow. there were highly trained security guards being pushed around by like six, six year old girls to eight year old women. <laughs> Just like and I remember we got through that like melee. And I, I remember my mum's part of her button got got like stuck on the toggle of a, one of the women in the crowd's coats and they like, had to like wrestle for a second and sort of run off. And we all ran and we jumped into the car. My mom and dad just like, and I don't know if this was like a plan they had made or just their very genuine reaction, just started laughing and just was like, how ridiculous was that? And I think, you know, that's a moment where you do look to your parents for their reaction. Like right. if I'd got in the car and they'd been really freaked out, I think I probably also would have been freaked out. Whereas I can now go through those situations to be like, huh, that's crazy. And just sort of move on. Yeah, yeah. but I, I do wonder if you ever felt like you were in danger. Because you were like a Beatle situation, right? I mean, sort of, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I don't think I ever really felt like in danger. That's not the feeling that you get from Potter fans. The only the, the <laughs> times you feel <laughs> like... They're not a dangerous bunch. No, they're really not. They're, you, know, I, you feel sometimes like... Um, like sometimes, um, you know, as a as a kid, the thing that sucked, and I really the thing that did like, you know, borrow its way in there and and was really unpleasant was getting booed. Like when you when if you would be going into an event and the autograph hunters, the professional autograph for those who don't know, some people don't know these people exist. Um, you know, there are professional autograph hunters in the world that um, make money off of that make money right. off okay. it, and I don't hate that. Like, I'm not somebody who objects to that on any moral grounds. The idea that my shitty handwriting and my signature can make someone money is hilarious and great to me. Like, right. well done. I kind of respect. There's, like, there's a bunch of guys in New York who I actually know weirdly well at this point, because some of us have, like, grown up together. Like, there's one that guy who I knew weird. who it's was... like knowing your stalker. <laughs> Don't say it like that. But, yeah. No, I get, I get it, though. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, and but I know, you know, there's one guy who... I've seen since he was like 14 and he's an autograph hunter and he's now like in his 20s as well and like so there are some people that can do it and they, they go about it in a way that is okay and they're not dicks about it and they're fine but there are also some people that just like will boo and shout at a child <laughs> and so like whenever I be like at a premiere and like I've just done like a day of press and I'm going into the party which is not going to be fun it's going to that's going to be its own sort of thing of press and so you haven't actually genuinely got time to sign it's not necessarily like a snub but at that moment if you just go inside and you just hear people like booing and shouting stuff at you and about you like that as that as a kid like sucked like I I, I, I do remember that being like very like disheartening which is probably now why I like have a uh like a pathological need to sign whenever I can. Just to avoid the... the I think a little bit. Yeah, kind of, probably. Well, you know, I, I read a few reviews from that time, you know, some of the early films, and they weren't all kind, and I thought, God, they're reviewing his work as an actor as though he's an adult. It's like an adult reviewing a performance and not taking into, into account that it's a 12-year-old kid or whatever. I didn't see any of that, though. You didn't? Like, I didn't when I was... No, not when I was young, young. I looked Your parents later. wouldn't be like, let's look at the London God, Sunday no, Times. absolutely not. And they would, they would never... They, yeah, they, they, they were always like, good or bad, don't read them. Just like, that was always their advice. Don't read the good ones, don't read the bad ones, they will all affect you. And I did not stick to that. I, when I was, like, 16 or 17, I started, like, Googling shit, and I was like, oh, some people think I suck. Like particularly in those like early films. You know, I, I definitely think like, I'm like glad I got better. Like I'm, I'm very glad that I've, you know, I mean, and I was able to learn by doing. Like I was, and there is absolutely like, I have some very, you know, some acting lessons on camera that I, you know, I'm sure would do differently now if I was asked to, but that's, you know, that's the reality of how my career started and, um, yeah, and I sort of, and I, I don't. Well, yeah, how it, could yeah. you? How could it start any other way? Right, you're like, yeah. But when you're a kid, I suppose there's not this awareness that there's this giant breadth of of different methods for approaching acting and no. creating characters. No. And, <laughs> and did you ever stop and realize the enormity of what you didn't know or what you didn't get because you didn't have the normal actor trajectory of having to go to a million auditions and yeah. and go to classes and and yes. You know yes, what I mean? So totally. No. Did it give you some sort of an insecurity well, I can, about it? I, um, particularly, like, I'd go into a rehearsal room on stage um, to do a show, and I would be thinking, like, oh, everyone in here is just thinking, 
he's this kid from Harry Potter. Like, there's no way he would be here if he wasn't hadn't been Harry Potter or whatever. And honestly, that made me work really fucking hard. Like, yeah. that made me want to prove that to not be true. And yeah, and I think the, the moment that I actually realised, oh, wow, there's like... There's tools out there I could be using to help me. Um, was not till I did Kill Your Darlings when I was like 23. Yeah. Where you played, um, Allen Ginsburg. I played Allen Ginsburg, and um, the director of that like sat me down and talked about this is this is really. And I don't mean to because um, you know we worked with a lot of great directors on Potter, but I think there was a thing that happened where because every director after Chris was like coming into a system that was already set up, right. nobody wanted to be like, hey guys. Can I like make you do some acting classes, or can I make you do like no one was gonna come in and like shake it up in that way? Um, so it wasn't until I got to like John Krakidas, the director of this movie, that he well, said. Well, they're not to me, gonna like, mess with number one on the call sheet. <laughs> well, I, but that's the thing. <laughs> no, I don't I know. think it. It was even you know it's not we were kids, so it's not like they were like intimidated by us. But I think everyone was just like you know there's a million things going on and and it's working. So like don't don't, they broke, don't, don't mess with it. the system. Yeah. yeah. And then John Krakidas came in and was like, you know, what are you? trying to get out of this scene. And like really basic stuff that I'm like embarrassed to admit that like I had never thought about before or had never really been talked to me about before, but like, you know, just writing down like a want for every scene or like an action verb next to every line, rather than trying to seem a certain way, you are trying to have a certain effect on another person. Cause like trying to cultivate like, I want this to seem brave, or for example, is like, well, how do you know what that is? Or your interpretation of brave is probably a not really right or, or or real. Whereas if you're trying to just like inspire the other person that you're with, that's that's an action that involves you know that's affecting them yeah. rather than being self-conscious and trying to make yourself do something. Um, so like stuff like that that I had never and it was just like he was presenting me with this like oh wow there's like a, a there's a world of tools that I can be using to like get better and learn. Um, and I think it 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 sort of took actually doing. A film in America, because even you know, I did Woman in Black was my first film after Potter, and that. But a lot of that crew was also on Potter. Like it was, it's a British film industry, so if you've worked on Potter, it's hard to then not bump into people again, like on other jobs. Right. And there's something about being on a set where a ton of people have known you since you were a kid, where it's hard to suddenly like affect the attitude of an adult and and try to see yourself as an adult when there are people still who see you as a child. Absolutely. So like doing it it's in It's like going home to your parents after moving away for a while and, and you, like, you oh, regress back I'm, to who yeah. you were at the dinner table in high school. Totally. And There's, so going to America and doing a film over there with people that, like, I was just arriving as a 22-year-old actor. Like, that was hugely, I think, liberating for me in terms of, like... Because also there's, like, an element of embarrassment. Like, if I've been doing all these, like, you know, trying out new methods and stuff in front of, like, the crew that had worked with me since I was 11, I'd be thinking they'd be like, oh, you're changing, you're getting, but you know, turning into a wanky actor or whatever. <laughs> but, like, there was something about doing it in that environment that was, like... And I wasn't, and I still don't hopefully think people thought I was incredibly pretentious. But, um, but yeah, there was something about doing it with people who just, like, they don't, I could have always been like this to them. Like, they, you know, they don't know that this is me trying something new for the first time. So you felt a little bit more liberated in trying it. Well, it's in a funny way, you're describing what a lot of us felt like when we left home and went off to college and we got to reinvent ourselves. Right. Yeah, that was my version of that. Well, you know, it's funny you say that. I read something that just struck me. You described not being able to do something that your friends were able to do, like go to a club, a nightclub, and go dancing. Right. And the way you described it was that everyone wants to see how Harry Potter dances. Or whatever, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. And what I took away from that was that every move you made was scrutinized, and there must have been a pressure associated with that. Like your idea of what's in everyone's mind. Yeah. Who's going to be a wanker for for yeah. uh, trying these new acting methods? Or uh, we know who he is and what his skill set is. And, right. And, yeah. and I imagine that would feel, it would, it would feel like everywhere you went, you were still around the same people that knew you in high school that wouldn't let you grow and move on or something. I mean, nobody consciously obviously doing that. But, but, no, but, in your yeah. own head, though. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, yeah, it's one of the reasons I love being in, spending time in New York is that, like, no one really gives a shit there, like, about who you are. Like, I can walk in places and no one cares, and it's great. In London, there's like a sense of like, because I'm English, there's a sense of like familiarity and like ownership almost. <laughs> yeah. And particularly with like super like rich upper class people who will just like fucking grab you like you are this. And we go, come here, say hello to my friend. Um, <laughs> really? Hey, all right, mate. Um, it's, and, it's that familiar. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and not always, but sometimes. God, you've probably had some of the awkwardest moments in history. Uh, yeah, some. <laughs> um, but there is like an awareness that I really struggled with, particularly in my like late teens when I was like when I was going out to places for the first time, where you would you would like feel. And it, again, it could have largely been in my head, but you would feel watched when you went into a bar, when you went into a pub, and then, you know, in my case, the quickest way of forgetting about the fact that you were being watched was to get very drunk. Um, and then, as you get very drunk, you become aware that, oh, people are watching more now because now I'm getting very drunk, so I should probably drink more to ignore that more. And, like, you know, so it gets into, you know, you get into it, it, it can, it can, like, it can affect your... Psyche, and you sort of have to, yeah. And I think it's that something. As I said, yeah, there has there is no blueprint for starting young and working stuff out. Right. Um, that's why, like, whenever people like having a go at like Justin Bieber, drag racing cars, or whatever, I'm always like, yeah, but you know, I don't know. Like, it's, stuff could be super crazy for him right now. I don't like it. This and and his like must you know. I, 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 I will always have like there's an empathy there, because unless you're on that side of it there's no way you yeah, can understand you it you don't quite know how kind of overwhelmed it's possible to get in it or to you know and it's also it's the ex- part of the thing is the expectation that you should just be delighted all the time you know you have a great job you're wealthy you've got, you should just you don't have a right to ever feel sad or to, to not be like excited about the whole thing all the time and I think that's a that's a pressure as well because if you suddenly start to feel like Man, if I'm if I am just feeling some human emotion of sadness, does that mean I'm doing this wrong? Does that mean like I'm not good at being famous or not good at you know living my life? But the thing I'm so lucky about is that I I love it and I ultimately love the work and that's the thing I'll always go back to. Um, but there are some people that like don't love it and then get trapped in it and then some in some cases you've become the breadwinner for your family or the hyper right, and so, right. so a, a, an infrastructure of people is relying on you to keep doing this job that you might have got into when you were eight and now hate but now there is you would be letting so many people down if you didn't do it so I was just like very lucky that I loved it and wanted to well it. that's a good point because I think there is an isolation that comes with being the only person sort of in your own particular situation. And, and you're expected to not only hold it together, but set an example because of the position you're in. Yeah. I would imagine that there would be no avenue of, a, of a, like a pressure release valve at that age. Yeah, no, the, the, that seems isolating to me. It, it was, but also uh, that's why I would say the, the best place for me during all of that was set. Was right. like that's where I because actually you know I this is sort of going to sound like it's in direct contradiction to everything I said earlier about how actors are treated on set, but if you uh, you know go about things in the right way, actually being a film set is the place an actor is treated the most like other people in the world because like there's not the imbalance of oh wow that's an actor that I've seen before. It's like we all we're seeing actors every day. Like there's nothing special about it. Yes. We're all just here. No, that does, that's, that's uh, not a contradiction uh, in terms right, of yeah, yeah. I understand that. And that's really nice. And I think yeah, it was when I like started going out into the world that I started feeling like you know started like feeling my fame for the first time and and not quite knowing how to deal with it. Um, but when I was on set, it was always very simple. So when you found yourself in that situation of, oh, I'm just going to drink and try to forget about it and then I'll drink more because I can't forget about it because (laughs) I'm... How did you sort of pull yourself out of that spiral? Because that was probably the fulcrum in your life where it could have gone either way, right? Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, you know, it took a few years and it took a couple of attempts. Um, But I, I think I have been just unbelievably lucky with the people that I've had around me at certain times in my life. Um, And I met some really key people, some of them actors, some of them not, um, who just gave me great advice and really cared for me. And ultimately, it was my own decision. Like, I woke up one morning after a, after a night going like, this is probably not good. <laughs> um, Would you get to the place where you were actually not remembering? That was very much my thing. Um, that was the, it was. the, the not remembering. Yeah, that was, that was the stuff that I was always, like, amazed. Like, that I, you know, you've ever had one of those conversations where you say something thinking that it's a universal thing, and then you find out that, oh, it's just me. <laughs> like, I had that moment a few times where I was like, yeah, but I mean, we all forget, like, large portions of the night when we go out, right? Like, it's all just a mess for all of us, right? And I was like, nah. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Okay, then. Um, but, um, it's like you're retroactively finding out about acting and stuff from journalists. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, ah, right, okay, cool. I'm, I'm, I might have to stop that. And I, I don't miss it generally, like, now at all. Like, I, 
I really and I know and that varies for some people some people really still do and some people like don't and there are there are other things that I miss that would go along with those nights like I miss being able to go to a pub and like have a reason to be there because it's when if you're not getting drunk it's really not as fun <laughs> but other than that like I don't miss the the actual like when I when I think of like yeah like the the sort of chaos I used to invite into my life um I'm like ah, I'm I'm really much happier now and I think there was some part of me that was like actors have to be like crazy cool drunks like I have to live up to this weird image that I have in my head of what it is to be like a famous actor or something and then at a certain so at a certain point it becomes about like who are you actually like drop if you're dropping all pretenses like what makes you happy and like I really like like staying in and doing fucking quizzes online and shit. Like I'm I'm I I'm very like happy with my sort of sober life now, which is which is right. Nice. To me, when I hear that, I think there was probably a point in your life where you had to quiet the self-critic, the voice that said, "This is what people are thinking." And what changed for you about your own messaging to yourself? I think I have got a little kinder and a little more confident in my to yourself and my place in the industry. Like I, you know, I've had the experience the last sort of the last two theatre shows I've done. I, I've walked into the rehearsal room and I, contrary to that first time I would walk into a rehearsal room with people just being like, why is he here? You know, I've done like, I've done an 11 month run in a musical now on Broadway. Like I've done, I've done multiple runs of, t of, of stage shows on, on England and America. Like, so the last two times I've walked into place, I've been kind of going like, no, I, yeah, I've earned my place at this table now. Even if you took Potter out of the equation, like the, the work I've done in theater would stand alone for this. And that's a really nice feeling. And yeah, I've kind of been able to be kind of slightly kinder to myself and realizing that, you know, I don't have to get everything right immediately. Like we're never the like the finished article as as a fully formed human being and I'll you know, I don't have to become that immediately. Right. Which sort of you needed to become at the beginning. You I had guess, to be sort right. of a fully formed yeah, a acting bit. kid that pleased that was everybody. Also okay and yeah. And I am fascinated by the things that people assume are universal. You know, the way you see yourself, the message you give yourself, you just assume that that the world's in concert with that, and they they also are thinking right. that same thing. Yes. And you create sort of rules for yourself based upon these truths that you've created. Yeah, and totally. like you said, you're walking into a set up until or to a stage experience up until two or three plays ago with this idea that you know what other people are thinking. Yeah, right. But that's so unique to you. Yes, and and maybe so unique that it, that it feels universal, like that you just assume I know it too. Right, yeah, 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 like, totally. Like you, and you assume that the thing that you read on comment boards when you're 20 or level, like I did a lot of Googling myself for like a few years and then you I did. had to stop that as well. Um, that I think it's brave to even say that now. Oh no, I, I will be, and, I, and it's great because you can watch interviews with me at that time being like, oh, I never read anything. Such lies. Uh -huh. um, and I, um, but yeah, you assume that, and it's the classic thing, if you can go through 100 comments and if 90 of them are great and 10 are shit, you remember the 10 shitty ones. And then you also internalize those 10 shit comments and assume that that is what everyone is secretly thinking when you walk into a room of like the worst thing. And maybe that's just me, maybe that isn't everyone. Maybe like I just have a particularly like neurotic way of going through the world. Um, but I don't think it's that uncommon with Actors. I don't think like, it is either. Yeah. We had Emily Mortimer on here, and, oh, yeah. and she said that being on a film set is like being in a film noir movie where you finish a take and you look out at the crew, and people are whispering and talking, and you've got an entire plot in your head of they're thinking about firing me, they think I suck. Like, you. Oh, bless her. That's so nice. It's, it is really nice to hear that somebody else thinks that shit. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, Emily. Um, um, yeah, I think you can definitely. You can definitely get to that place, um, and, particular, and, and I think there's a correlation between like the more vulnerable and exposing a scene is, the more you're gonna like look up after. And I remember actually James McAvoy said a thing to me that I've always loved, which is that acting is by its very nature embarrassing. Like you have to be part of what you're being paid for is being okay with embarrassing yourself, like as having a full blown mental crying breakdown in front of you know the lighting guys who don't give a shit and who are just gonna go to lunch afterwards or whatever year it is who's just like says some like, you know. And you're um, like I'm not moving that guy. <laughs> right, right, and then you look up and you're like oh man, well. 
he hates it, but it's like, he's just doing a day's work, dude. He's not come to see you out right. today. But I think there's part of acting is when you like put yourself out of there. It's, it's similar to like, I just did a comedy on stage and like when you, sometimes you would like lay yourself out for a joke and get nothing. And you're like, ah, yeah, I feel super cheap. Like yeah. you just feel very like exposed at that moment. Someone said to me once that when you are famous, you never get a chance to make a first impression. You walk into line. a room and you know everyone has an opinion. And I guess if you were that tuned into it, you could almost not function because you would have to, you would feel an obligation to go around and dispel every... Yeah, everyone's preconceptions of you, preconceived ideas. And I you, guess yeah. if you've done it since you were a kid, you don't know any other way. I, I, I wonder if there's a, a point in your history where you could pinpoint that and go, that's the age where I felt the most isolated from my age group, my peers. I'd say um, actually probably like mid to late teens. It was when I was doing a lot of uh, schoolwork, but also like was was that was probably the time that I found it hardest to like, um, you know, because I couldn't go out with friends to like to just hang out and do the stuff that they would do. But I also didn't at that point. I was too embarrassed to just say why, like to just say like, dude, my life is kind of weird and crazy, and if I go to that place, it might not be fun for any of us actually, because we'll all have to deal with something. Like I just couldn't. I was too embarrassed to like actually just say that. Oh, so, so you make up excuses. I would just be like, oh, I can't come. Sorry, man, and just and and feel like, you know, that wasn't giving a good excuse. And it was probably why I've not, you know. Like, I had friends at school, but, like, none of them were people I've, like, stayed in contact with because I would always sort of... I think they would lose patience with me, honestly, and fair enough. I can imagine that. There must have been moments where you're sitting there in your... wherever you're living by yourself just going, if the world only knew, like, what they think my life is versus what it is. Absolutely, and I think that that was the case, and I think there was that was the case sometimes when I was, you know, sad in my own life. But even at, at the lowest, lowest point... I still loved my job so much and I loved going to set and there was never a day where my own shit would affect how I was on set. And I would just like, there was never a point where I was like, oh, I wish this hadn't happened to me. I wish I wasn't Harry Potter. Like that just didn't happen. Have you ever been able to put into words what it is you love so much about your job? Um, I love being in the middle of a a huge group of incredibly creative people who are all working together to and using all of their different skills to make one thing happen. Um, filmmaking, when it's good and when the right atmosphere is created on set, is is one of the most collaborative experiences. And so it's both a you know, you kind of, uh, there is a community, both in the film industry general and also on each individual film. There is a community element to it. It's just like feeling that you're in the middle of this, this, this huge team trying to construct something together. Right. Well, I have to pay you a compliment in the choices that you've made post that whole crazy 10 years of Harry Potter. It seems like you've, you've, sought out roles that are risky by experimental filmmakers that don't follow any sort of a, um, a plan for, for success by any sort of monetary measure. It just seems like you are trying to choose projects that um, make you happy to be an yeah. artist. Yeah. And, and I was curious about that, if you ever had to sort of consciously say, okay, I'm never going to equal monetary. Totally. So, so fuck I it. mean, do, do you see like? it as, as, as a, yeah, as a it's freedom? Yeah, liberating. Yeah. yeah. So, like, to know, you have, I have done the most successful thing I will ever do financially. It's done. I'm never going to be in another film series that makes $5 billion. Thank like, God that's not your definition of success. Right, exactly. And so you find new ones. And so you find, like, okay, and actually my definition of success now is just, like, what makes you happy? Like, what are you happy doing? Like, I'm in a very fortunate position where I can pick and choose things based on what I like. And, you know, who knows if that will always be the case. But for now it is. And I'm going to take advantage of it for as long as I can. Did you ever feel like you're acting, but you're not acting in the way other actors are acting, where they get to go out and create a new character and try on a new skin? And yeah. you know what I mean? Like, oh, absolutely. I used to get really, um, you know, not yeah, kind of jealous of just like seeing other actors going out and doing like have, building their careers and having lots of various different parts and lots of stuff. Um, that's why I was really keen to start doing other work even while Potter was still going on. Well, I wanted to ask yeah. you about Equus because oh, yeah. that was such a crazy left turn from expectation that even back when it happened, I remember thinking, well, that 
he's clearly trying to go as far in the other direction. Yeah. To the point where, I mean, I thought it was a very brave and bold thing in theory to say, I'm going to test myself in a completely different arena and take on this dark, psychological, weird, sexual role that is so different than what I'm doing. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I, again, I had the moment, like there was a headline printed very, very early on um, in, uh, like, well, I think when we were in rehearsals, it was talking about me doing the play and it was like, I think it was in the Express or something. It was just like, uh, crash, bang, what's that? The sound of a promising career coming to a grinding halt, uh, which was their, you know, assumption of what was going to happen when I did Equus. Um, and I remember, like, looking around the room and looking at, like, Thea Sharrock, who just moved on from being the artistic director of, big, of, a, of a theatre in London, and... Uh, John Napier and David Hersey and these amazing crew and Richard Griffiths. And I'm just going, like, right. if I'm screwing up here, like a lot of other really good people are screwing up too. So that's like, the, you know, we'll, we'll see. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I think I knew that like for my first thing on stage, I couldn't do something that was kind of half-assed. Like it wasn't no. just to get from like as far away from Potter as possible as much as to show that like, I was in it for like the right reasons, I guess, and wanted to really test myself. Because if you do, so, if you, if I'd done some just like nice, quaint English play, people would have still been like, "Well, you're not really showing us anything different." You know, it's 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 still, you know, it, it just it sort of I think made people just sit up and take notice a bit more. And, and then and I have had directors say to me since that even if they didn't like see it at the time, that was knowing that that had happened kind of put me on their radar as somebody that it was obviously willing to you know, try stuff. Yeah, it was a bold move. I mean, because even, you know, you mentioned several times that you were, you've, and even in this conversation, that you were so comfortable on a film set. Mm. I wonder how it felt to walk into that theater and, and realize how out of your comfort zone you potentially were. I mean, I done, I, you know, the thing I always do is like a lot of preparation. I do as much as I can for something. So I'd worked with a vocal coach for like 18 months before we started rehearsal because we knew a long way out that we were going to be doing Equus. And yeah, I mean, I think there were moments when I was like, you know, do I know what I'm doing here? But I also, it was just like, listen to the director, listen to Richard, you know, learn from those people and, and trust them. Um, and and it's it was, it became... Um, kind of less intimidating. I mean, it was it was still a bit intimidating. Probably every night of that of that London run for for a while because it was still like the first time I'd ever done something on stage. But at the time, there was a every night I was going out of there being like, you need to convince all of these people that you can do this. Did you have any of that where people would like try to throw you off your game or? We no, we had some people like wolf whistle when me and Joe in London or me and Anna in New York got naked. So there was that, but there was one group of girls in New York who, because on Equus we had on stage seating as well, but it was raised, so it was like uh, sort of old surgical examination sort of theatre seating, and there were three girls up there who just started, because I never left the stage, once I walked on, I, even if I wasn't in the scene, I'd just go to the, the there was like right. this block in the corner and I would sort of just lie on it or sit on it, um, and these three girls just started talking to me, like while a scene is going on next to me, these three girls are going, Dan, Dan. Dan, up here, and just like whispering me for the entire first act. And I eventually, and I think I gave them a couple of like mm, scowling looks, and then that didn't seem to Doing a play off. here. Oh, yeah, I'm doing a fucking play. And then, um, <laughs> God, and that's horrible. That, and it did not, but that's the thing, it was coming out, they weren't trying to put me off, it was coming out of a genuine, like, he's so close, we can just talk to him. And like, no, you can't. Um, and then I did, I, I, I came off stage and I was like, can we move them? Can we? We don't have to kick them out of the show, but can we move them into just the auditorium so they can't like shout at me for the rest of the show? Oh which, my which they God. did. But yeah, but that's the most like that's the most crazy bit of audience behavior I've ever had to deal with. I've seen like I did also what I I in the play I just did I, a phone went off, which is a very common thing to happen. Right. But it went off in the middle of Bobby Cannavale has a speech about his his character's dying mother and. Girls just want to have fun was the ringtone that just like <laughs> popped up at the at the like the critical emotional moment of the play out of the speech when the theater was silent and this phone was like in the second row it could not have been louder if it had been on stage with us and it was just like I fully just winced I Bobby 
just stayed the course magnificently, did not bat an eyelid, did not throw him. I'm sure I made a face and almost turned out I completely was like out of character for a second. God, that, I mean, there, there lies the difference between film and theater in that anything can happen. Yeah. Like, I, I think when I was watching that thing of you and J.K. Rowling, she said the night she watched your yes, necklace, that did happen. That someone threw an owl on the stage. Yeah, someone threw an owl on the stage the night she was there, and I was so embarrassed. And then she came back afterwards and made a joke that she had thrown it, which was, she sort of diffused the situation very, because I was quite embarrassed about it, um, that it had happened when she was there, because it never happened any other time. No one ever threw an owl at me another time on stage, just when Joe Rowling was there for the night. Did you know that she was uh, there that night before you went on? Yes. Yeah. You know what's funny about that interview you did with her is that right at the beginning she says that when, when you were cast for the role, she had the weird experience of almost meeting her son. Yeah, she had written, she, had, she had conceived you and written you and, and, and then she met you and, and I think of her going to Equus and there's her son. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's better thought of my actual parents. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, they, well, well, yeah. That, but that's the thing, they were like theater people. They grew up in, um, they, you know, Equus was like a classic play of their time right. growing up. So right. they, the fact that their son was doing it was, you know, exciting, not, not you know. And they, you know, they've seen me naked more than anyone else in that theater had. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, Kudos to you for doing something like that at that point, because uh, the films weren't even all out yet at that point, right? They were, they were still no, two to I come think out. No, had like, yeah, six and seven left to go. I would imagine that would be some, like, there would be some hushed conversations with the producers about that as well. There probably were. I was blissfully unaware of all yeah. of them. At the time, I heard they were all very supportive and fine. I later found out there had been at least a couple of, like, are we okay with this? But they didn't, you know, there was no morality clause in my contract. They, can't, they couldn't right. say what I could and couldn't do. They could suggest strongly, but... They, and, they, and they didn't, I have to say. They were, like, ultimately very encouraging of me doing all the other work that I did during Potter. They, they, they weren't, but I'm sure there was a moment of, hang on, um, what's this play about? What do you say? Horses? What? Yeah, yeah right. Um, blinding, yeah. Um, I want to, before we finish here, I want to ask you about Swiss Army Man. Oh, and, and especially in light of what you just said a minute ago, which was that you like to go really deep into prep. But what I wanted to ask you is, a film like Swiss Army Man, which we should say was uh, with Paul Dano. Yeah. It's directed by Daniels, the Daniels, the Daniels. Daniels, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Two fellows named Daniel, Dan and Dan who Corn. made the most original, uh, most experimental and just joyful, weird film. Yeah. Paul Dano, at the beginning of the film, is about to kill himself on, on this island where he's been marooned and a corpse washes up on shore and it's you and the corpse isn't really dead though he talks and performs all kinds of helpful acts like yep. uh, farting to propel them across the water yeah, and I can be used as a jet ski you can start my, fires I can start fires my dick becomes a compass guiding us home yes um, forgot yeah, about that there's a, yeah there's I, a, I think <laughs> you can open bottles I think maybe oh mouth. yeah I think he does one on me doesn't he yeah. right there's a few yeah <laughs> but I'm uh, curious about when you take a job like that and you start trying to busy yourself with the prep mm. like how do you prep to be dead and floppy it's you don't you really you really I mean uh, that that is the most I think it's probably one of the scariest and probably for that reason one of the most rewarding and fulfilling jobs I've ever done. Was it scary because there was no rules? Yes, because there was no reference for because you can do anything. Right. Because like because you're not play, and also you're not playing a zombie. Is how do you communicate deadness at all times without playing zombie and without and you know it's it's it, you're playing magical dead guy. So like what does that mean? Well, we've never and seen we, Magical Dead right, Guy and before. That's, so, so in the run-up to it, I was really like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to prep it, and I don't know what that means. So I would literally, like, I would sit at home doing stupid videos on my phone and of, like, my face, of, like, weird positions with my face. Or, like, you did. I found out that I could do this thing with my eye, which I was like, does this work? And I would just, like, send them photos, and they would send stuff back. And then it was really a case of, like, I got there, and then it all made sense. Like I got there and I was just like, oh, I just have to listen to the directors. They know exactly what they want this to be and I just have to give it to them. Um, and it was also a huge moment was seeing myself in the makeup for the first time. Oh, I was really? just like, oh, I don't have to play dead. I look dead. I can play whatever I like because deadness is being communicated by the makeup so I can just let that go. Isn't that a crazy example of, of the unknown of what's coming and so you try every yeah. way to convince yourself you're going to be okay, yeah. right? Like, like you're, you're basically trying to stave off fear when you're when you're Preparing. prepping yeah, like that. Yeah, totally. It's it's just being as prepared as you can because it doesn't because often it means nothing when you get on set. But you've it's just like you know, I 
if I know I'm going to do a play, I will start learning those lines as far in advance as possible, just because it's something to do. And it means that when I think about doing that play, it's not, oh God, I've got to get on that. It's, I'm doing it. Right. Yeah. You know, I think what you're talking about is, is that same blank page fear of, especially for a writer, where when it can be anything, it's overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. And I think to look at your career and see the choices you've taken on, and, and so many of them are so different than the next, that I think it's admirable that you've not fallen back on what you know or what you can do to have a safe existence. Oh, good. And maybe there's a lesson in that of take on the craziest, hardest challenge in the middle of when everyone thinks they have you figured out. I mean, I do think, I think, it, I think you just have to, if you, if you do something that's like, incredibly successful you have to kind of try and view it as being liberating to like the in the way that like you know the radiohead made three albums that got them massive following them it was like okay we're gonna get weird now and you can like like it or not but we're gonna do it because we can um and and like I, I i feel like them and like a, a few other bands like i mean the beatles as well like they they were Absolutely. very and then they was just like we've got we, we can do what we like now because people will listen and they you know created like amazing music like i don't think i'm doing things on that level but i think that attitude is like is 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 really helpful no the fact that you identified that at such a young age and implemented it is it's it's impressive. Good, thank you. It's Cheers. fascinating it to talk to you, and I really appreciate the time and, and letting me dig into all of your past. And yeah. thank you for letting me. No do worries. It. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Real pleasure. Cheers. Hey folks, that's our show. You know, I'm always fascinated by people who start out doing what they love to do at such a young age and are able to do it professionally. And none of us can imagine the pressure that Daniel must have felt carrying that whole Harry Potter franchise on his back. And it's just amazing to me that he handled it with such dignity and grace. And yes, he had some slip-ups and I think he found out a lot about himself in the process, but I can't imagine someone doing a better job of getting through an experience like that than he did. It's pretty impressive that he got sober and managed to do all that at such a young age. So I really enjoyed talking to him. Definitely check out his new show on TBS Miracle Workers. And if you miss Swiss Army Man or Kill Your Darlings or Jungle, that's a great way to dive deeper into his career and his work. And I think you'll find that he's a lot more than what people maybe first gave him credit for. He's a terrific actor and a really wonderful fellow. So check all that work out, and of course, you can always go back and watch the entire Harry Potter series and watch the boy become a man in front of your eyes. It's kind of fascinating to watch him back to back, as I did with my kids. Hey, another thing you can do with your time is you can go to offcamera.com and you can watch our entire series back to back. For only $4.99 a month, you can get the off-camera monthly television subscription. And this allows you to see every episode we've ever done in glorious black and white on any device as many times as you'd like. And hey, it's a chance to watch this show grow up before your eyes. We started almost six years ago in a much smaller studio space, and it was actually just the waiting area of our office, and the back wall was the bathroom. So those early episodes, I was certainly still finding my way, and so was the show, but it's a great thing to be able to go back and see the progression of the show, and of course, to dive into the lives and careers of all of the iconic artists that we've had on. So. If you haven't done that yet, there's a whole archive waiting for you. I think we've done about 180 shows now. And if you don't have Audience Network on DirecTV, well, you should get it. But if you don't, you can certainly watch all of our shows at offcamera.com. Also, if you're loving this podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, that's a great way to make sure you don't miss an episode. Just head over to the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe. And while you're there, give us a rating, leave us a review. Anything over five stars is acceptable. And that way, more people can find out about the show. Just that simple thing is a great way to share your love for off-camera. Another way to share your love for off-camera, of course, is through social media. We are at Off-Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. You can suggest guests. You can just tell people why you love the show. You can ask a question. Whatever. You know how to use social media. I don't have to tell you that. You can also send me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. I'm happy to answer questions, give bad advice, take guest suggestions, or 
Anything else that's on your mind, just let me know. Let me know about your life. I want to thank everybody that works on this show every week tirelessly to bring it to you. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. Couldn't do it without all those lovely people. So when you see them on the streets, give them a hug. Maybe buy them lunch. Just a small token of appreciation. And uh, we'll keep doing this show for a long time. And most importantly, be sure to join me next time when I sit down with actor, photographer, artists, zombie killer, and fellow motorcycle enthusiast, Norman Reedus. I used to work at this place called Dr. Carl's Hog Hospital, and I ended up in a fight with the guy who owned the place, and a friend of mine took me to a party just to get drunk and get over it. And uh, I drank way too much, started yelling at a bunch of people in the room. And uh, this girl came up to me and said, hey, did you ever thought about being an actor? And I was like, because I just lost my job. I was like, well, will I get paid for this? And I was an understudy. And plus it came with, you probably won't have to do anything because you're the understudy. But it was a young, good-looking blonde kid. And I was like, he'll, he'll never not show up. And the first day, dude didn't come. And he just I, didn't show up. Yeah. And <laughs> that's kind of how I started. Norman has always been a bit of a mystery to me. And I wanted to have him on the show to talk about his love for motorcycles, but also about his wildly unconventional path into acting. Well, I got more than I bargained for. And I even learned that we lived in the same building in downtown Los Angeles, back when we were both broke and hustling to make a living with our art. And yes, we talked about The Walking Dead and the surprising way he found the key to his character, Daryl. It's a great conversation. Don't miss it. See you next time. Off camera.